0: For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. And Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace that you've poured abroad in our hearts through Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We give you thanks that in all of life's trials and storms even in the midst of our sin and despair your grace is working your grace has worked your grace will continue to work to bring us all the way home so God help us this morning as believers to rejoice in the greatness and the wonder and the beauty of your grace pure unmerited unearned favor and kindness and help us in this time to realize the grace that you've given us in the giving of your inerrant inspired and infallible word help us as we read and hear to understand by your Holy Spirit's power illumine what we read let the light of your word pierce into our darkened hearts and change us with each word, each syllable, more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray and ask. Amen. Amen. You can be seated and open in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, of course, you can use your, your app or on your phone or tablet or whatever you brought with you, but there's also Pew Bibles there in front of you, and you can turn to page 883 in that Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along in a physical as I say, real Bible there in the P-Pack in front of you. The the notes are always on U version. Uh, I say always. Every once in a while, we'll skip a Sunday, but today they're they're there on U version. If you use the U version app, go to the menu, go to events, and you should be able to find this event if your location settings allow for it. Uh, find this event Sunday morning sermon, June eighteenth. Today we'll be looking at uh, chapter two of Romans on the judgment of God. I thought about the last couple of weeks that we've been and the next couple of weeks that we'll still be in this section of Romans and I promise you Paul is building an argument he's going somewhere Okay, so as we do expository preaching, as we preach through books of the Bible, we take chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, There's a reason uh, that these things go in the order that they do. And if you were reading this letter in the first century, when Paul would have received it, would have been read in one sitting, and you would have gotten the whole picture at once, and say, "Okay, well, there's 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 the whole picture all together." So just remember, week by week, as we're taking this apart. Uh, in pieces, that it does all fit together. It is going somewhere. And that's, that's the thing we have to remember as we preach through this. Today we're going to be thinking about the term justice. Uh, the term justice is so often used, maybe overused in our society, that it's has completely, too many, lost its meaning. What do we mean by justice and social justice and racial justice and any other kind of justice that we can throw out there? We might hear it so much that the term begins to mean nothing to us. We become jaded to the idea of justice, let alone the idea of judgment. And then let's just get outside of the political noise of justice. And let's think about it in our context, in the church, in the Bible, justice, judgment, the judge, as we heard from Revelation earlier today. When I think of judge, I immediately want to finish that by saying Judge Judy. And I think of that courtroom setting and there's always these ridiculous cases there and that's made for TV, is what it's supposed to be. And you look at that and it's entertaining and it's fun to watch, at least it was for me. And you come away thinking, man, that is, that's crazy. Those people are crazy. Those people, them, they. And you think judgment may be justice. Certainly Judge Judy is just for them, not for me. In a religious context, we might be tempted to even think that judgment is not for us. After all, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. If you want to put that verse in context, go back a few weeks on Wednesday night and listen to our first out-of-context study on Matthew 7, verse 1 about why that's not meant to say that. But people take it that way, don't they? Jesus says, hey, don't judge lest you be judged. And they think, well, God must not judge. I certainly won't be judged. Much as I appreciate Franklin Graham, I heard him a few years ago on Fox News tell an audience of millions that God was not angry. And if you've ever seen those cartoons that get so mad that smoke just comes out of their ears, that was me listening on the radio on the way home. Here you have an audience, Franklin Graham, with millions of people listening and watching, and you've told them, God is not angry. Well, that contradicts what we saw even last week in chapter one, just in verse 18, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven, God's anger. God's wrath is being poured out even as we speak right now. And it will be certainly one day. And maybe you agree with that. Maybe you say, amen, God, God's wrath is coming. God's judgment is coming, but not for me. Paul now confronts us with the reality of this wrath and God's anger towards sin. It's based on God's perfect, righteous, holy judgments based on God's criteria, God's decision. And I wonder if you think you know that criteria today. I wonder if you think you know how God will judge you. And I wonder if you've thought about how you fit on that list. By what means will God judge the world? By what measure will God judge me? And the second question is kind of like the first one. How do you think you fare in light of that judgment? And what does the gospel have to say about all of this? Let's pick up in Romans chapter two, beginning in verse one, and we'll read through verse 29. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when God, according to my gospel, judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law... And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others do not teach yourself. While you preach against stealing, you steal. You who say that the one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Number one today, the first truth we come face to face with is that you will be judged. You will be judged. Every single person in this room, under the sound of my voice and outside of these walls that has ever lived and ever will live, will be judged. Now, I wonder if that comes as a shock to you. You consider yourself above that, better than that. Perhaps you came into this place this morning thinking, I'm a, I'm a relatively good person compared to so-and-so, compared to them, compared to what I see on TV, compared to my family, I'm a good person." It would have come as a shock to many of Paul's hearers, too, particularly his Jewish hearers, as he addresses them so often in this context. Paul expected his hearers to agree With everything he said in chapter 1 verses 18 through 32 about the wrath of God and human sexuality and depravity and the judgment of God that is coming upon them, he expected them to hear that and to say, maybe as many of us did, aloud, amen, so long as we think that that's them and not me. We addressed this a little bit last week, but this week Paul makes it abundantly clear. Look at Romans chapter 2 verse 1 again and see how he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Back in chapter 1 verse 20 at the end of that verse, Paul said, So they are without excuse. And so Paul in chapter 1, as he's unfolding this concept, uses that that third person plural way of, of referring to something. They have no excuse. But here in chapter two, verse one, we switch to that first person or second person singular, you have no excuse, oh man. In preaching terminology, Paul switches from his shotgun to his rifle and he goes right in for the kill on those who are listening. In case there was any confusion of who Paul was talking to, not just them, but you and me. Paul speaking to those who presumed that they were off the hook. There's no judgment coming from me, or there's no judgment at all. And he means by this, as one commentator said, to throw a bucket of cold water on the self-righteous that were hearing him. Maybe it throws a bucket of cold water on you this morning. Paul says, you who think you sit in judgment over them. You think you sit in judgment over them. And then he asked rhetorically, how do you think you will be judged? You who have set yourselves up as judges over others, what will be the criteria of your judgment? Won't it be the same as it is for them? You who quickly pronounce the sentence in chapter one, verse 32, those who do such things deserve to die. You who amend that sentence and proclaim that sentence to sinners. What do you think your sentence will be? Paul says, because you practice at the end of chapter two, verse one, you practice the same things. Yes, they are sinners. So are you. In verses two through three, Paul says God's judgment rightly falls on sinners. And then in verse three, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do you do them yourself? that you will escape God's judgment? God's judgment rightly falls on sinners. You are also a sinner. So, do you think that God's judgment will just simply skip over you? Do you think that you will somehow just escape? For many of the hearers, the Jewish hearers in Paul's audience, believing or not, this would have come as a shock to them because even for believing Jews in Paul's audience, there might have been some of those vestiges of that racial superiority because of who they thought they were inside of God. We're God's people. We have God's law. He chose us. And perhaps there was this thinking that there was a different set of standards for their judgment. Maybe you think there's a different set of standard for you. Paul says here, rhetorically, at the end of verse 3, do you think you will escape this judgment? rhetorical answer is, of course, you will not escape this judgment. Verse 4 gives us another option, though. Or you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Okay, maybe you admit your sin. Maybe you're ready this morning to say, okay, I know I'm a sinner, I know I deserve judgment, but sin is no big deal with God. Maybe you've been led to believe that the gospel is that yes, you are a sinner, but God doesn't care. Maybe you've been led to believe that the gospel, the Bible teaches that we mess up and make mistakes, but God's okay with that. It's no big deal. Paul says, you presume Literally, that word means despise, as so to abuse someone or take advantage of someone. You presume upon his kindness and his patience and his riches. And by doing so, assuming that all is great, it's all good, God will wink at my sin. God is love, mercy, grace, and kindness, and he doesn't care about my sin. You presume upon his grace and you miss the point. His kindness and His patience toward you is not because you are good or that everything is okay. His patience and His kindness toward you is because He is merciful. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine says, He is desiring that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Peter says, that's why He delays His coming in his patience, in his kindness, not because you're so good but because he's so patient and merciful. But Paul says our problem in verse 5 is you're hard to show us what our self-righteousness really is. Our self-righteousness at its core is really idolatry because it comes down to these two options in self-righteousness. You either say, God will judge, just not me, or you say, God won't judge because he's simply love and grace and kindness and mercy. And you see, either way you go, either side of the road that you fall off into the ditch on, idolatry and self-righteousness fuel this sort of ironic, cruel way of thinking, Paul says in verse five, because while you think you're storing up goodness, For yourself in self-righteousness. While you presume upon God's grace and kindness and mercy and you think that's what you're storing up for yourself, in verse 5 he says the cruel irony of self-righteousness is this, you're not storing up love and patience and mercy, you're not storing up as Jesus said, riches in heaven, but Paul says you are storing up for yourself wrath that will come on the day of wrath. Because as you turn inward, and Paul says you exchange the worship of God for the worship of some creature or yourself and your own goodness and your own self-righteousness, Paul says when you turn that worship in on yourself, you will reap what is sown and what you are sowing in self-righteousness and insisting on doing this by yourself is God's wrath. Chapter 1 verse 18 told us that wrath is already being revealed. It is already being poured out, that God has already handed over sinners, given given over sinners, gave over sinners to their desires and their depravity. It's already being revealed. But one day his wrath and the final judgment, as we read from Revelation chapter 20, will be revealed. And on that day, we need what Paul says in chapter 1 verse 17. We need the righteousness of God revealed to us. Why? Because, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. We must understand that, repent of our sins, because judgment will also be revealed. And what will be the criteria or the standard? Maybe you're okay with this to this point. Yes, God will judge. God will judge me. What will be the criteria or the standard? I remember listening to a podcast where the host went to a Christian bookseller convention. Can you hear this? A Christian bookseller convention. And one of the questions the podcaster asked Christian booksellers, many of them, on the day of judgment, will God lower his standard of holiness for you? And it was remarkable how many of them said, yes, I think God will lower his standard for me. God will lower his standard because, you know, how else are we going to get into heaven unless God lets off some of the holiness, unless God lets off some of the righteousness and the perfection, unless he lets off of that, I don't know how we can get into heaven. So he must lower his standard. Look at what Paul says in verse six, he will render to each one according to his works. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. This judgment will be according to God's perfect law. And according to verse six and what we saw in Revelation chapter 20, this judgment will be according to your works." And all of the good Baptists say, wait a minute, my works? I thought we were saved by grace through faith alone, not works. Isn't that Paul's whole message? Isn't that where we're going? I mean, if you know the book of Romans, you know that is where we're going. But for today, we're here in chapter two. Did Paul change his mind suddenly about justification? When he said in chapter 1, verse 17, that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, that the righteous shall live by faith. Has he suddenly changed and now it's all about works? Paul is quoting here from, presumably, Psalm 62, verse 12, in which the psalmist speaking about the day of judgment says, God will render to each man what he deserves. I want to ask you a simple question. Just pause the theological gears for a second judged by works, judged according by what you do, I want to ask if God gives each person what they deserve, exactly what they deserve, no more, no less. Here's the question. Is that not justice? If God gives you exactly what you deserve, you get what you've earned. No more, no less. Is that not justice? And God's judgment will be perfectly fair and perfectly holy. And then Paul, in sort of this hypothetical argument in verses 7 through 10, says, Listen, verse 7, if you've done good, judged by works and you've done good, guess what? Eternal life. Verse 8, opposite is also true, but if you've done evil, wrath and fury. Verse 9, Verse 9, it's bad news, bad and bad news. It's bad news for those who do evil. And in verse 10, good news for those who do good. And verse 11, make sure we understand that there's no partiality with God. He's not taking into account whether they're Jew or Greek or Gentile, or whatever the, the sort of uh, categories that they form for themselves or we form for ourselves. God's not taking that into account when He judges. Perfect, fair, equal, holy. You get what you deserve according to God's justice. You do good, eternal life. You do bad, eternal death. And so you say, that sounds fair. We agree this is fair. That's great, so let's do it. Let's be good. Let's be righteous so that we can have eternal life. I'm gonna ask, have you not been paying attention? God's wrath is revealed on sin. His righteousness is revealed against all sin and all sinners and that includes you. You will be judged according to your works. I wonder if you still think that's a good thing. I'm fine with that. If I died right now, I stand before God, He opens the books, He judges me by my works. I wonder if you think right now, that you'll get a passing grade. Yeah, my goodness outweighs my bad. I'm not a bad person like those people, or the people on TV, or the people in my family, or my friends. I'm I'm good, I'm better than them and so I'll be okay. Let's do this. If you've done good, eternal life. That's me. Francis Schaeffer once said that the judgment of God is sort of like you've carried around your whole life this secret tape recorder or whatever the modern version of that would be, a phone voice recorder or action recorder on our phones or something. He says, imagine that all the time, everywhere, secret tape recorder for your deeds, your words, your thoughts, your feelings. And then you come to the day of judgment. God rewinds the tape recorder, hits play. To quote Dr. Phil, the great theologian, how's that working out for you? (laughs) If God's standard is perfect and pure and righteous, the tape is played back. How do you measure up? Do you stand a chance? The Jews listening to Paul might have been shocked to think that this applies to them. And they would have said, perhaps, of course, God's chosen people, after all. We're we're the ones. Maybe you're shocked that this applies to you because you've come in again thinking that you're relatively good. I want to remind you this morning, as Paul says here, God does not care who you are. God does not care where you're from, and he does not care what you think about yourself in terms of his judgment, all will be judged by the same concrete holy standard. For them and for us, Paul says, God has granted patience in this time. He's granted time, a time of mercy for you to repent, for you to turn to him, for you to be made right with him. This is a time of mercy, but this time of mercy will not last forever. It will come to an end and the judgment will come. And I wonder if you've thought this morning what your verdict will be. When the books are opened, as Revelation said, when the tape is played back, how do you stand before God? How do you think you stand now? How do you think you will stand then? And that gets us to this next question I have. Number two today, where is your trust? That's the central question at the heart of the gospel, isn't it? It's the central question in every church service, with every sermon. Where is your trust? Where is your hope for salvation? It comes here in this context, in the package of self-righteousness. Yes, in part for Paul's Jewish audience that might have been listening or hearing this letter, but it's for us too. In verse 12, he says, all will be judged by the law, whether they had it or not. In verse 13, he says, yeah, the Jews had the law. We read in, in Exodus, we went through the whole story. They're at Sinai, God gives them the law. He reveals it to them. He didn't give it to Egypt. Or to Assyria or Babylon, he gave it to his people Israel, the Jews. And so Paul says, yeah, the Jews had the law. They heard the law. But he says it isn't just the having and hearing of the law that does anything. The law is not just about hearing and having. It is about doing. The law requires absolute, perfect obedience in the doing." That's why James says in chapter 1, verse 22 of his letter, we shouldn't just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. The same applies to the law. They couldn't just hear it and have it and claim that as their salvation. We're God's people, we have the law. God would have said, okay, you have the law, you've heard the law, are you obeying the law? But what about those who don't have the law? Verses 14 through 16, Paul says they're gonna be judged by it Anyway, verse 14, when the Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are law to themselves. You know, they don't have the law. They show that the works of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the Gentiles didn't have the law. God gave it to his people, Israel, the Jews. They'll be judged by it. The Gentiles didn't have the law in that way, tablets of stone revealed from the voice of God, but Paul says at some level, remember last week, at some level they did have it, made in the image of God with his likeness and his image pressed onto every single human being, Jew and Gentile. Paul says, remember back in in chapter one, they have it, they know it, they knew it, but in their sin, They have suppressed it. And so in chapter 1, verse 20, he says, they are without excuse. And today in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you are without excuse. And the fact that that image of God is there And there's some conscience in each of us that tells us right and wrong. And it's how we live in this life. No matter where you're born or what you grew up thinking, there's a conscience. There's There's a concept of truth and falsehood of right and wrong. And God says that will stand against you on the day of judgment. You might excuse yourself with it now and talk yourself into believing and thinking anything about how good you are. But on that day, it will accuse you and it will accuse you rightly. Paul says, verse 16, on that day, watch this part, when God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. You might be fine today if we we can go back and put the filter on what God judges from maybe 9 a.m. to now. And just look at the works. Just look at the outward appearance, God. You might be, you might be okay going back further and thinking that the scales will, will, will weigh out in your favor. Good uh, taking over the bad and you'll receive eternal life because you've been relatively good in comparison to how bad you think you've been with the deeds. But what about the secrets? What about those secret thoughts, the secret feelings? Paul says, it'll all be laid bare before God. I wonder if you think you'll have an excuse then. In verse 17, Paul says, well, if you think that your confidence and your trust is that you're a Jew, to his Jewish hearers that would have been hearing this read, you think you're a Jew, you've you've got the law, you had the law, you're God's people, you think that's what it's about. That's where your confidence and your trust is. Look at what he says in verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, if that's where your confidence is, to rely on means to lean on or to trust. That's where your confidence is. In other words, on the day of judgment, these Jewish hearers, you think you'll stand before God and you'll be okay, because your confidence is in your birth, your nationality, your culture, your background, your privileges, You think that's what you're going to bring into the courtroom with God, and that's going to be your boast in God. Verse 17, Paul says, you call yourself a Jew, you rely on, you lean on that, you trust in that. In verse 18, he says, you think you know his will, you think that by knowing the law, you approve what's excellent and you disapprove of what is bad. After all, we're, we have the law of Moses, we have the kosher dietary laws. We know what to wear and how to dress and what to say and what not to say. And so we're able, verse 19, we are sure that we are the guides, that we have the light to those in darkness. Come look upon us. We are the light of the world. In verse 20, Paul says, you think that you're an instructor. You think that you're a teacher because you have the law, which is the embodiment of the righteousness and knowledge of God. But look at verse 21, when Paul gets them. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You break the law too, he says to these Jews and maybe to us today. In verse 22 he covers adultery, idolatry, stealing, covetousness, and they would have been listening and maybe you're listening and you're thinking, well, when did we ever do those things? When did I ever commit adultery? When did I ever steal? When did I ever lie in that way? When did I murder someone? Do you remember the punchline sort of of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount there in Matthew chapter 5? If you've lusted after a woman or anyone in your heart, that is adultery. If you've harbored anger or insulted someone, that's the heart of murder. And we could keep going on and on and on and on. When did we ever do those things? And Jesus would say, and Paul would say, they're right there in your heart every single day. So I ask you at the end of this, and Paul asks us, so would you trust in the law? You still want to go by the books? You still want to do this whole, I can obey, I can do good, I am righteous thing, I'm good enough? You want to still do that? Paul says, do you want to boast in God? Let's go through the checklist one more time from Jesus, from Paul. James tells us in James chapter two, verse 10, that to fail in one aspect, to fail in one aspect of the law is to fail the whole law. And so if adultery and stealing and murder is in your heart, you are captive to sin. And I ask you again, do you still want to do this by the book? But how often is that the case? Maybe it's still the case for you now. No, 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 no. I'm good. I'm not so bad. They're not so bad. My dad's not so bad. That person who doesn't know Jesus isn't so bad. Maybe the judgment will be different for them. I want to ask you, what standard? You're using today to say that? Are you using your standard, someone else's standard, or are we listening to God's standard, which is absolute 100% all the time perfection? And Paul said there in verses 23 through 24, he said, By boasting in these things, By boasting in your pride and your self-righteousness, he says in verse 23, you are breaking the law. You say, what law am I breaking by the self-righteousness and and thinking I'm, I'm good? Verse 24, it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of you. Paul says, you know which law you're breaking when you claim to be righteous in yourself, when you claim your works as the confidence of your salvation. Do you know where you're breaking the law? The third commandment, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And the Jewish hearers would have said, well, we don't do that. We don't even speak the divine name. We substitute Adonai or Hashem. We don't ever say the promised covenant name of God. Maybe we do the same thing. I never use Jesus' name in vain. I never use that, that combo curse word that invokes God's condemnation on people. I don't do that. I'll take God's name in vain. Paul says, oh, yes, we do. Because to take God's name in vain is more about than what we just speak. It's as if we take up the jersey of God and we say we're on the team, put us in, and then when he puts us in, we completely botch what we're out there to do and we bring shame upon God. We say we belong to Jesus and we go into the world and live like we don't belong to Jesus and Paul says you are taking the name of the Lord in vain. And he says this is blasphemy. Self-righteousness at the end of the day is idolatry, and idolatry is nothing more than blasphemy. Paul wants us to know, though, starting in verse 25, that the law isn't bad. Specifically, circumcision isn't bad. Circumcision was given to Abraham and the Jews as a sign, holy and good and righteous. But he says in verse 25, It is indeed a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What's the point, Paul says, in receiving that physical sign as a Jewish male if you then go on to break the law? Paul says it's of no use whatsoever. It's the starting point. It's the physical sign, but it brings with it the requirement of absolute, total obedience. And so Paul says to his Jewish hearers, if that's what you're relying on, your circumcision, your birthright, the promises of God in the old covenant, that's fine. But you've got to perfectly keep the law. And in verses 26 through 27, he turns the whole thing on its head and makes the Jewish listeners probably stop in shock at what they hear. But what if someone who is uncircumcised, Paul, Paul says, well, if the uncircumcised keep the law better than you, then it's just as if they were circumcised. And he says, they will sit in condemnation over you. You had the written law and you break it. They didn't have the written law and somehow they keep it. Don't you think that will be the same? But I want you to see this morning, the predicament for them is the same. Remember, whether they had the law or whether they didn't have the law, the question is, listen to this question, who can keep the law perfectly at all times and in all places? And the answer is, no one. Remember, this argument's unfolding. Paul is going somewhere this week, next week, as we continue to go through this letter. But he says to the Jews, relying on the law, relying on circumcision, then you got to keep it. And he says to the Gentiles, if you think you're going to be saved by works, again, you got to keep the law. But Paul's argument is clear. No one does, and no one has an excuse. So let's see lastly today your need. Verses 28 through 29 tell us, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is from man, not from God. This is Paul's thesis here. This is the the thesis of this whole first section of the book of Romans. Listen, the whole thing tells us that no matter the outward physical stuff you think you bring into God's judgment, your need is beyond mere knowledge. Your need is beyond mere appearance. Your need is beyond your culture, anything external. He says in verse 28, being a Jew outwardly means nothing if you're not a Jew from the heart. Verse 29 says it's not about the outward circumcision of the body. It's about the inward circumcision of the heart. And listen, he's quoting Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses tells them this. It's more than this physical sign. You must be circumcised in your heart. It's not a checklist to be looked at and checked off piece by piece and step by step. It's of the heart. And Paul says, listen, the only person who can do this for you is the Holy Spirit. I want you to, for a moment, replace the Jewishness of all this with modern American evangelical Christianity, maybe even you. And as, as fun and interesting as circumcision is, let's think about stuff that we rely on. But pastor, I said a prayer when I was four. Pastor, I remember, I remember filling out the card with the deacon on the front pew. Pastor, I remember walking the aisle or raising my hand. I remember going to church. I remember being baptized. But you've never come to an understanding of your sin and God's wrath. Maybe you've never seen yourself in the mirror of God's law and known your brokenness and sin. You've done the thing, you've checked the box, you've played the part and you're lost. It's easy for us to look at these in the, in the text and scoff at them. Of course it's not about works. Of course it's not about outward performance. When we often trust our own self-righteousness just as much. Paul says we all stand without excuse before a holy righteous God who will judge us by the law with no partiality, no favors, no extra credit. God's perfect law and you want to trust in that for yourself, I keep the law, do you? I'm pretty good, are you? Tony Meredith says, we are all going to be judged by God's perfect standard. And no matter who you are or where you came from, you are a lawbreaker. And maybe you're asking me this morning, as Jesus' disciples asked him in Matthew 19, 25, you hear all this and you think, well, who can be saved? Who then can be saved? None of us are perfect. God requires perfection, dead end. And Jesus said, Matthew 19, verse 26, you're right. With man, with you, it is impossible, but With God, all things are possible. Although we are lawbreakers, rightly deserving God's wrath, there was one who came to keep the law for us. In Matthew 5 verse 17, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 through 5 that in the fullness of time God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law so that what? He could redeem those who were under the law and make us the children of God. You see the wonder in the gospel there. You are lawbreakers, but in Christ you are called sons and daughters but it came at a high cost. These here who trusted in the law, who trusted in circumcision, who claimed that, they missed the point. Without going into all the fun details, circumcision is about being cut off. And it points to the verdict of those who disobey God and don't keep his covenant, that they deserve the judgment of God to be cut off. And Paul says, without exclusion, without exception, we have all fallen short of the glory of God and deserve to be cut off from Him. But the good news of the gospel is that this perfect, pure lawkeeper, Jesus Christ, Himself was cut off for you. So that you and I, lawbreakers cut off from God, might be brought near. And Paul says in Romans, chapter 5, verse 8, God shows his love in this way and that while we were still sinners, far away from God, rebellious, cut off from the covenant of God, Jesus Christ died for us, bearing the wrath and the judgment on our behalf so that we could receive blessing and grace and life. This is the universal answer for salvation. There is no other route. There is no other plan. There is no other option. Paul says in verse 9, judgment is coming to the Jew first and to the Greek. He said it again in verse 10, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Law, no law, culture, Gentile, judgment is coming. I wonder if you caught that language because we've heard it before. Back in chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. For all who believe, the Jew first and also the Greek, your need this morning is an inward transformation of your heart by the Holy Spirit. Your need this morning is the righteousness from God to save you from his judgment. And listen, here's the good news. Don't miss the good news because someone will inevitably come to me and say, Pastor, that sermon was so gloomy and dreary and death and destruction. No, here's the good news. God has provided for your need in the giving of his son and his gospel. Listen, the law reveals our need of a savior. But the Gospel announces that Jesus is that Savior. Unbelievers here today, you are abiding under the wrath of God. He is angry and there will be judgment. I want you this morning to hear the law. Let the law do its work not to provide you a ladder to God, but to cut everything out from under you so that you will have nowhere to look but to Jesus, the perfect lawkeeper who was cut off for your sins, who offers you his record and the invitation to run to him in faith and repentance and receive his righteousness as yours. The invitation is open for you today. Believers, how often we are tempted to think that God did his part and now it's up to us. In our temptations, in our trials, in our sin, in our doubt, I want you to know, believers, the gospel is for you too. Believers, you didn't get into this by obeying the law. Listen, and you will not keep yourself by obeying the law. The beginning was grace through faith alone. The end will be grace through faith alone, and everywhere in between is grace through faith alone. Your obedience now, believer, is by the power of the Holy Spirit who is at work in you, not to maintain your salvation by obedience, but to live lives of worship and gratitude and honor to God for what he has already done for you by obeying him and loving him from your heart. As we close today, I just want to read for you a portion of a prayer from this wonderful Puritan prayer book called The Valley of Vision. And I want you to hear the good news here today. I was dead in my iniquities having no eyes to see thee, no ears to hear thee, no taste to relish thy joys, no intelligence to know thee. Unbelievers, that's where you are today. Believers, you used to be there, but here's what happened to you, believer. Here's what can happen to you, unbeliever. But thy spirit has quickened me has brought me into a new world as a new creature, has given me spiritual perception, has opened to me thy word as light and guide and solace and joy. And when that happens, by faith in Christ, here should be our prayer. Oh, help me then now to walk worthy of thy love, of my hopes and my vocation. Keep me, for I cannot keep myself. The invitation of the gospel to all here today who are unbelievers, is to realize you're standing before God is perilous. Wrath is coming. The judgment will be just and fair, and you will get exactly what you deserve. And Paul says, the wages of your sin is death. But there is a free gift. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Unbeliever, repent of your sins. Trust in Christ right now today for your salvation, for his righteousness is the only answer for you. Believers, as we think about what our God has done for us in Christ, let us now pledge to live our lives out of worship and glory to him, not to earn anything more from him, not to attain, not to try and pay him back but out of love and worship and service, let us say, I am yours. Help me now to live the life that you have called me to live in light of who you have told me I am in Christ. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the goodness of the gospel, the goodness of this good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you that the Holy Spirit, even right now, has the power to change the most impenitent, hard, stubborn heart in this room, listening, watching. And so, God, we ask for you to do that. For unbelievers here today who think that they've got this, who think that their righteousness is good enough, who think that they are good enough, bring them to their knees in light of the judgment of the holiness and righteousness of God. And then point them to that mercy which has been extended in Jesus and help us as believers to rejoice in what you've done and to live for you in light of what you've done. We ask all this in Jesus name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's F-B-C-D-U-M-A-S at hotmail.com. Also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.